Welcome to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. This podcast may contain swearing, plus it will be filled with lots of interesting chat. All the views are expressed to our own and are not those of our institutions or employers. You're welcome to share your own views in the comment box on the website. And if you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe. And you can find out more on our website, innerzonepodcast.com. Or on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also like us on Facebook. So, without further ado, here's this week's episode. So, hello and welcome to the In The Zone podcast with me, Mike Ryder. And me, Josh Hughes. In today's episode, uh, we're joined by uh, Dr. Emma Franklin, who's uh, got her PhD in uh, linguistics. She could join us and talk about um, language and death, I think, if I understand <laughs> rightly. Something like that, yeah. So, hi, hi Emma. So, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your, uh, your research? Hello. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm a corpus linguist um, specifically, which means that I use um, large bodies of text in my research and I use corpus, well, computational software to interrogate the data, um, which means I can look at large amounts of data at once. Um, and in my PhD, I used corpus methods to look at the language of killing, um, specifically animal killing. So um, before my PhD, I was working on a lexicographical project, so basically a dictionary building project, um, which also used corpus methods. And mm. specifically, it was about how um, how we might describe the behaviour of verbs. Um, it was a verb dictionary um, based on patterns. And while I was working on that project, it just really struck me that the language of killing needs to be looked at more. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I was also changing my my view on on humans, animals, um, and I went vegan. And, you know, started reading more about um, how we relate to other animals, and it just made sense to me that, you know, for my PhD, I should be looking at how we talk about killing animals, basically, and and looking at verbs to do that. Right. So um, that's how so this it is fascinating. Came to me, because um, I've mentioned in the previous podcast, um, my sister's a vet, and it's always fascinated me the, the language we use around killing. Because my research is all around sort of humans, animals, robots. I look at biopolitics, mm. um, but because my sister's a vet, it always strikes me as interesting the way that we talk about sort of animal deaths versus human deaths and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that's come up in conversations with Josh on on occasion, isn't it, Josh? It has once or twice. So there's, there's a little bit of delay on the line. Um, because we're recording uh, via Microsoft Teams today, uh, I think Josh's connection might be a bit ropey, so he's a little bit delayed. Sorry, team. Um, yeah, because we're all self-isolating with the uh, coronavirus crisis, so uh, we're having to do this remotely. But uh, I think it's going all right so far. Yeah, it's going all right. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's just it's just quite funny now because you've become this dis- disembodied voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah um, so it sounds really interesting. So so what exactly, what area of animal killing are you looking at specifically, Emma? Um, well, I was focusing on the UK for a mm. start and, and the vast majority of animal killing, not just in the UK, but around the world is um, the killing of animals for food products. Um, you know, there is something like six billion animals killed just in the UK every year, just for food and we're not including things like experimentation. Um, and other other uses of animals by humans. So mainly I was looking at how we talk about the industrialised killing of animals. Um, but it, it it 
varied. I mean, I, I did also look at how humans talked about killing animals who they lived with, you know, their pets. Um, and that was very interesting, actually, because, you know, we we call ourselves animal lovers, don't we? And mm. the way that we talk about killing dogs and cats um, and our sort of beloved animals is quite different from how we talk about the killing of, of animals in industrialised killing. So, I, yeah, I think it is really interesting um, how vets and and animal owners talk about that kind of killing, the put put to sleep and put down. So I looked at 15 mm. verbs um, or, or verb phrases um, and one was put down and one was put to sleep. Mm. Um, and, and, and predictably, they did behave very similarly, but they weren't exactly the same. Um, and I found that even though you know, like I said, humans, we like to think that, you know, we really care about animals and, and we do love them in, in a way. Um, the way that we talk about killing them does betray our attitude towards animals as essentially um, property. You know, we talk about having animals put down in the same way you might talk about having my car serviced or oh, um, it's the same grammatical structure. And it's... Um, it's really only when you break verbs down in that way and you look at them syntactically and how they're behaving mm. in constructions that you start to question, OK, why do we talk about animals in this way, but we don't talk about humans in this way? Um, and that's just really where where my kind of research came from, was questioning, OK, we do talk about slaughtering pigs and we do talk about destroying horses and dogs, but only certain species um, tend to be given these kinds of descriptions and other species don't so this really fascinates me and regular listeners will probably know that i'm really into like this this sort of like the, the idea this the idea of sort of killing and sort of death and how we relate to it um philosophically one thing that always comes up with me and which is what i wanted to speak to kate about when we do finally get kate on the podcast is obviously when you put down like a, a dangerous dog you don't say executed do you you say i'm no. not executing this dog it's destroyed Whereas, say, if it was a human being, they would be executed, which in itself, I think, is quite an interesting distinction. Now, also, obviously, when we talk about putting things to sleep and like the idea of maybe sleep and death and maybe thinking mm -hmm. of death as being in a sleep as a way to sort of ameliorate um, the loss. I was going to get onto it a little bit later, Josh, but there's also obviously a lot of ties in with um, the way we talk about death in war as well. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea of slaughter and stuff. I mean, this, this actually is in my thesis. I haven't didn't mention it beforehand. Um, I do talk about the, the links between um, how you compare slaughter, which would be something you do to animals versus what you might do to people, in which case the slaughter is more like a genocide or a sort of industrialised killing of humans. Exactly, um, yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, generally what I found was that there are terms that we do use for both humans and animals, but even when we use the same term to mean killing for both humans and animals, they have slightly different meanings. So as you were saying, if we slaughter animals like pigs and, and cows and sheep, um, it tends to denote a kind of process. It's not necessarily meant to be an emotive term. Um, and on the whole, when we extend these animal killing terms to humans, it tends to have this connotation of brutality. Mm. Um, so to slaughter humans is, like you say, it's, it's a war context. It's not a process. It's not um, the production of, of something in the same way that... Um, the slaughtering of animals for for you know their bodies to be eaten is mm. um 
and in the same way, you know, you can destroy a human, but when you talk about destroying humans, um, you mean spiritually, emotionally, you'd say he was destroyed by that. It doesn't mean that he died. But when we talk no, about animals being so. destroyed, it means, you know, officially somebody sanctioned for this animal to be killed. And we don't talk about all animals in that way. I mean, you wouldn't destroy a pig necessarily and you wouldn't destroy, I don't know, a snake. It would have to be usually a dog or a horse or... No, and, it tends to be a punishment, doesn't it? Was it or? Um, yes, I think, well, I think destroy, because, and this is the nature of, of verbs, is that they tend to imbue the nouns that they are associated with, with a particular sense. So um, destroying, the destroying of something is technically, the, if you look at the etymology of it, is to unbuild. So we mm. destroy houses, we destroy constructed things. You can also destroy abstract constructed things like faith and hope. These are all things that we've built. You can build a marriage, you can destroy someone's marriage and confidence, things like that. Um, and when we talk about animals being destroyed, we are effectively construing them as objects. Um, you know, and we're saying that dogs and horses, they serve a purpose as as tools, I suppose, to humans, mm. don't they? Um, and when we destroy them, we're, we're, we're decommissioning them. We're saying, you know, they're, 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 they're not safe um, or they're not wanted anymore. Um, and that's something that came up actually because my, my, my thesis involved writing dictionary entries for these verbs. And when I look at the entries, you can see that um, there's, there's an ambiguity in a lot of them. So to kill, to destroy an animal, for example, is to kill them because they are dangerous or unwanted. And there's no distinction between whether they're, they're dangerous or unwanted. It doesn't matter, really, from the human's point of view. In the same way, you'd put down an animal who's old or sick or unwanted. And again, it doesn't really matter whether they're old or sick or unwanted. Um, and something similar came up with the, the verb butcher, actually, which was interesting in that when we talk about butchering animals, there's an ambiguity over whether they're being killed or not, because you can butcher, meaning to kill, but you can also butcher a corpse, in which case there's no killing involved. So there is a real a moral difference, isn't there, in, in those two acts? Um, yeah, I'm sure I want, Josh, when you, when Josh you... knows a lot about the, the ethics behind these differences. That's right. Um, yeah, no, but one of, just on the point of butchering, I mean, I've recently watched a documentary series um, that I can't remember, but it was about um, a guy who was uh, accused of being a Nazi concentration camp guard, um, and he was referred to as um, like the butcher of Auschwitz. And, and, and in that context, butcher, of course, meant went to like assault, uh, well, to, to torture and mutilate people. Um, mm. Whereas it's, it's as you say, it's sort of it's, it becomes part of a process when it becomes when it's used in refer reference to animals. Um, you know, we don't think when we uh, when we apply the term butchery to a person, it's it's beyond the pale. But when we apply the same term and this and potentially even the same methods to an animal, it's it's blase. Oh yeah, and I mean the fact that we don't distinguish between whether we're talking about killing the animal or simply cutting up their their dead body, I think that just shows, doesn't it? We have a kind of a cultural indifference to whether or not it's killing. Um, but again, like I said, you know, when we apply something very um, mundane as what it would be when we talk about animals being butchered to humans, it's it's suddenly a very brutal act, isn't it? And you even have this um, one sense of the verb butcher is an intransitive sense. So it doesn't take um, a direct object, which means that you can say I've been butchering for 10 years. Um, and, and then you're talking about butchering in almost in a, a positive way, it's a, or at least at the very least a very neutral term. It's a vocational term, isn't it? Yeah. To, to butcher, it means I've worked as a butcher. 
for that time. Um, so, it, yeah, I just I kept finding again and again these these differences between the human uses of these terms and the animal use of these terms. Um, but you know, if you ask somebody what does butcher mean, what does slaughter mean, they'd say, oh, it means kill. It doesn't really matter who you're talking about, but it, it does. Yeah, and I suppose it's interesting as well in that when we talk about killing, we often try, like like you were sort of saying before, like put to sleep and put down, a kind of um, way to sort of soften the blow about what you're really meaning. Mm. But, you know, people sort of say neutralize as well, don't they? Um, one of my favourite ones is from the film um, Apocalypse Now, and they say prosecute with extreme prejudice. Yes, that came up in my search. Yes, I, I did. Well, I did. I did a census of killing terms to begin with because I, I did. I just thought, well, I, I need to pool everything. I need to find all all the killing terms possible. Yeah. Um, and I found three hundred and seventy terms for killing. Wow. And that was that was one of them. The extreme prejudice um, kind of frame that you get and, it, it, and there are lots of different ways of talking about with extreme prejudice but yes it was and that was really interesting and it was funny you were saying about sleep and death actually uh, Mike because I, I found this again and again it was like death is a, a place you can you know when you when you, um, you can blow someone away or uh, snuff them out and all of these kind of particles like away and out and off like bump off for instance mm. it's like we have this kind of a cognitive spatial understanding of uh, uh, the living realm and then the you know this realm of death um mm. so that was something that i again was really interesting but i i couldn't you know in the scope of my thesis really go into but i think that's something that um is, is very interesting as well yeah i mean this is stuff that really fascinates me because it ties in so much with the biopolitics that i look at as part mm. of my research um generally i just want to go back to the butcher thing actually because it, it occurred to me as you, you were talking about how it can be killing an animal but also doing something to an already dead animal and in a way, I suppose part of it is also suggesting that, well, the animal is already dead, even when it's alive. So it's almost preempting the death of the animal in a, mm. in a sense that because, as you say, they're sort of instrumentalizing these animals. Yes. When you talk about destroying horses, they all seem to be livestock, don't they? The sort of oh, yeah. the animals that we have in our lives. So it tends to be like a domesticated animal or a farmyard animal when you're talking mm. about that. So idea that the animal itself is just a sort of thing. It's just the next stage that you're moving on to without ever actually thinking about it as a real thing. Yes. Like in the same terms that we do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you could talk about animals as as meat to be, aren't they? And, um, you, you know, it's quite normal to go to the supermarket and see labels like um, grass fed beef um, as though you can feed grass to to beef um, because, you know, <laughs> cows are essentially just treated as as beef, aren't they? And um interesting you you know that the word livestock that you use if you break it down literally we're talking about stock we're talking about things mm. um you know in the word the word cattle for instance which doesn't have a lot of a lot of animal terms don't have these kind of um individual or individuated forms so you know sheep and cattle they sound uh even when we use them individually they they have the same uh, plural form but i mean cattle didn't even refer to cows or bovine animals until the 16th century because before that it just referred to you know, stuff property you know right. chattel a chattel mortgage it just means movable property so it, like you say animals for all intents and purposes in these contexts they are already just stuff um and that was something that came again in, in my in my analysis because you know for each verb i had to assign uh, I, well, I built an ontology of entities and, 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 and I had to assign, you know, which one would fit best. And quite often, unfortunately, um, I would select, had to select entities like stuff. 
um, to denote to living animals. And this is what, you know, we might call ontological violence towards animals, um, you know, describing them as anything other than sentient beings, which is what they are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it just seems to come up again and again, this, this idea of objectification um, and, and, and put to sleep is interesting you mentioned because to me that's again another theme that comes up is distancing. So mm. we distance ourselves semantically when we talk about put to sleep and put down. Um, and in other cases I found that you know we, we distance ourselves um, you know there's a tangible, there's a literal distance. So, so at one point I even had to implement a measure of how far I have to travel from seeing this mention of the verb to finding who the killer is, because the killer isn't mentioned in, you know, within say ten clauses of this verb. It's a, it's like it's like a mystery. I, I felt like a, a sort of detective at times. I was having to um, go through the text. Sometimes I had to read entire texts um, just to find out who did it. Um, and, and occasionally you also had the, the 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 animal, or sometimes it wasn't an animal. Sometimes humans were being killed, or um, but I mean, I, also the patient of the killing was not necessarily mentioned very close. Um, so the syntactic dif distance was also something really prevalent. But this, yes, yeah, the, the semantic distance is probably one that we're, we're less sensitive to. So we hear phrases like put down and put to sleep, and we don't recognise that we're hearing a euphemism, that we're hearing something that's been, um, you know, quite radically softened from what the reality of it is. Mm. Right, so this ties in with some other stuff I'm really interested in that ties in with this idea of um, sovereignty and the power of life and death. Because I, I, mm -hmm. I was interested where you said the killer there, where you're talking about putting an animal to sleep. Because obviously, when we say put to sleep, obviously we would often associate that with something a vet does, which That's is right. with an animal yeah. that is often ill. And it's often we're doing it for a positive sense. And mm -hmm. so what I was thinking is there's a, there's a difference, isn't there, between to kill and to, to let die as opposed to... Uh -huh which yeah. I suppose is maybe sort of implicit in that, in a sense of you're helping someone die as opposed to kill when it comes to put to sleep, where killing is tends to be the idea that you're doing something against something's wishes, maybe? Mm, yes, I mean, it is really interesting morally, isn't it? The difference between killing, letting die, withdrawing aid, and you could say morally they're all equivalent, couldn't you? Um, but there are also situations in which we know that perhaps the kindest thing to do is to help someone die. But again, like I found is that at least looking at a dictionary definition of these verbs, there was no distinction made between helping an animal, say, say a sick animal or an old, you know, a suffering animal to die and killing an animal who we don't want anymore. Um, in both cases, we could talk about putting them to sleep. Um, mm. And I think probably the purpose of that is to make us feel better about the whole situation isn't it sometimes it's to be sensitive to to the person who's losing the animal isn't it you know you don't want to talk about killing but often it's it's also to salve our consciences isn't it um and yes i i mean i i i kind of i was i was a little bit sad actually to find in my analysis that even with people who truly loved their their animals the language that we use when we talk about killing animals and you're right it's difficult to talk about killing with put down because um the person who puts down the animal you could still say i i you know my dog was put down and that means that i was technically the agent i took my dog to the vet and asked the vet to kill the animal you know for whatever reasons it could mm. be good reasons or not 
Um, so it's also difficult in that sense to pin down who did it, who's who's responsible. Is it is it me? Is it the vet? I mean, I'm sure they grapple with this on a daily basis, don't they? Mm. Yeah, That's really yeah, very much. It's a question of agency, then, as, as you mm. say. Because um, in this, then, I suppose, leads us on to the whole idea of the euthanasia debate and the role of doctors mm. and choice. Because I suppose with animals, at least, the, the animal doesn't really have a choice. Whereas no. if it was a, a doctor, say, in a euthanasia clinic, um, I think maybe we'd sort of view it slightly differently. I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think there, Josh? Well, I think I was just something that I was thinking about whilst you were both talking um, was sort of, you know, this idea that we talk about animals as property, both in the sense of industrialised for, you know, um, for meat and for and as pets and, um, you know, in the sense that we, yeah, we, 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 although we talk about them as property, there's sort of this division between, yeah, between the cattle and the sheep that we use for meat, you know, where we talk about um, slaughter and butcher and, you know, the, obviously the, the pets, you know, your cat and your dog, where you talk about put to sleep, put down. Um, and as you say, kind of that, that kind of, you know, using terms like put down and put to sleep to so, sort of soften the blow. And I guess it's in a way, maybe we think of, um, what it made me think about was that there's sort of this difference between, there's maybe a difference between the way in which we understand these animals as property in the sense that animals which we see as pets, we kind of see them as property because we care for them. Whereas we see, animals that are for meat is kind of as, as something useful i don't know maybe mm. i mean is this what one of the reasons why we have problems with horse meat oh well yes yeah, it's, it's, it's it's totally culturally determined isn't it i mean if you look at the eating of dogs in some countries we're you know horrified by that idea aren't we in this country quite often but uh, morally, I don't see how it's any different from killing mm. pigs or killing cows. You know, if you look at the attributes of those animals, they have much the same desires and um, and capabilities and, and, and all those kinds of things. Um, oh, you said something then that I really wanted to, to comment on and I've completely forgotten. What did you talk about, Josh? Um, sort of ideas where we see animals as property, but there's maybe, oh, that's maybe a difference it. between... Uh... Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, this is something that I found, again, I found quite difficult to discover because I, I, I come from a linguistics background. Um, you know, my, my, my educational background is not in human animal studies. So a lot of my PhD was educating myself on, on the history of human animal studies and, and the law and ethics surrounding this. And what I was surprised to find is that all animals are property. You know, no animals currently, apart from, I think, two or three cases in, in the world, have animals been recognised as legal persons. Um, you know, in the law, you're either a person or a thing. You're, a, you know, a legal subject or a legal object. And animals are our property under the law currently, because uh, the way that the law has been made by humans, for humans, it's uh, it makes sense that animals would have been classified as not as persons, but as the other, which happens to be things. So even even animals we really care for, and, and yes, we might treat them as property in the sense that we, we are their guardians, aren't we? We care, we, we look after them as though they're precious property, um, but we can't escape the fact that they're property. And I, I, I find that really difficult. And I, and I don't know how that's going to, um, how that's going to develop over time. Because there is growing pressure, isn't there, um, from, from lots of groups of people to recognise animals for being sentient and not just a sentient property, but as, as sentient beings and, and, and agents. I don't know what you guys think about. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, I suppose that, well, you were talking about, you know, the idea of, of animals as property. You remember that there's always that factoid that people break out that 
the Queen own, owns all of the sort of the swans and dolphins and stuff in, in the British Isles. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose yeah, there, it's, there does seem to be more awareness of uh, animals as sort of sentient beings and and as um, well, I was going to use the phrase sort of worthy of as being treated as as more than they have been. But I don't. Mm. Mm. It, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about my language very much now as we're doing this. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know. If I had, um, but yeah, no, it's um, there's, there's definitely sort of seems to be a lot more awareness about it. And I think, you know, quite recently, sort of um, Joaquin Phoenix, when he accepted for Joker, sort of referred to sort of um, differences between species and stuff. And um, so, yeah, there's definitely seem to be sort of something, sort of definitely more awareness, whether it sort of moves into more um, a, a bigger movement than kind of the. Uh, I mean, obviously, the sort of vegan activist movement and stuff um, that's, that's, that's been around for quite a while. But you know, whether mm-hmm. whether kind of that awareness moves into bolsters kind of this movement, I don't know. But, but I suppose we'll, we'll we'll find out, won't we? It's definitely uh, interesting and exciting. So this was made me made me think as well of some of the other stuff we talked about when we talk about um, technology, Josh, because we've had a lot of chats about gender and AI, right? And this has always fascinated me about the way we think about technology as being gendered right so you you automatically have to refer to something as a he or a she sometimes and often we give names to things this also ties in with the animals thing um because i'm I'm referring to my sister quite a lot because uh of her sort of animal background but um i always remember when she went up to this animal background background. there's a sort of field (laughs) she went up to this field of sheep right and um no she went up to a field of cows sorry and she she said something really interesting she said hello ladies and my mind was almost blown by that like that a very small comment because in a way when we think about dogs or something sort of a domestic animal we do think of them as gendered beings but often we don't feel think of the fact that when we see a field of sheep they're all female or when we see um a field of cows they're predominantly all female but so there's this idea of when you gender something suddenly they become more humanized um and there's a sort of a different relationship between yourself and the creature and or technology when we come to talk about um, AI and um, computers and perhaps also that that's that's quite interesting in terms of ownership that you were talking about before and in terms of how we as humans interact with them. Mm. Yeah, is that to, is that to Josh? <laughs> I don't know, it's just a general sort of point. I'm sorry, I'm just not throwing these things out there because I'm very excited by all these ideas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what it made me think about was, um, you know, in lots of sort of um, films about where robotics have sort of started to approach being a human being. So I'm thinking like Blade Runner or um, the AI film with, with Will Smith. Um, you know, so when the robot dies, they're kind of, they're talked about as though they're a human being, when of course they're just some cogs and, and mechanisms. Um, which, which which relates to something that I've been, I've been sort of, a, a, an idea that I've been sort of reading about off and on for a little while in terms of the idea that the more we humanize machines and technology, the, the we sort of overhumanize these 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 machines, and that allows us to kind of, or it, as a, as a sort of side effect of that, it kind of we underestimate our own humanness. And so mm-hmm. I'm sort of wondering about sort of you know if we anthropomorphize animals, do we think that that might sort of you know a, a similar sort of side effect in that we sort of begin to miss out our own humanness, if you will? I suppose that then it, it sort of that idea is obviously predicated on the idea that human beings are special. Mm, yeah, I mean, 
if we talk about anthropomorphizing animals, we're really understanding animals as in, you know, non-human animals on human terms, aren't we? Rather than understanding them on their own terms, we're trying to relate them to how humans behave. Um, and sometimes it's ultimately a, a positive thing because, you know, it helps humans to see, you know, other animals in different light, maybe to understand that they are social like us or they are emotional like us and they have intents and desires and, and plans like us. But um, I don't know about losing our humanity. I mean, it's a big question, isn't it? What is our humanity? And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of AI probably by this stage and definitely in the near future will will satisfy many of the criteria for personhood um you know moral personhood i'm not talking about legal personhood but you know the idea of what makes somebody a person and and really if we look at the history of, of personhood theory we're talking about what makes somebody human aren't we when we talk about what makes somebody a person um and actually it's not that um you know we're we're, we're starting to necessarily consider animals or, or AI as being more morally worthy. It's just that we're discovering they have attributes that previously we thought only humans had, um, for animals anyway, and, and and a lot of these will also apply to AI. So I wonder if that's a reason why we might we might gender AI in that way. Um, because they they mimic or they resemble a lot of the attributes that we have as humans, don't they? And that's something that we recognise as being morally valuable, like being a person. I mean, with animals, I, yeah, I mean, I've recently become really aware of, of language around animals. So, you know, one of the things I, I would do now is I give workshops on what I would call non-speciesist language, because, you know, we animal activists, vegans, for instance, would, if you ask them, you know, how do you, how do you see animals? Do you see them as, as things? And they will say, oh, no, of course. Um, but then they'll continue to talk about animals as it or, um, you know, use use language that construes them as, as objects, for instance. Um, and when we point that out, it's obviously not it's not about, um, you know, being the vegan police or whatever <laughs> and telling people how they should speak. But it just raising that question with people, I think it, it problematizes it. And, and now I, I, I am much more careful around language, but I'm, I'm aware that all, all language is, is anthropocentric. It's made by humans, isn't it, for humans? So. Mm. Um, we 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 have to understand everything in the world through a human lens, and unfortunately, that means that we we probably will never fully understand uh, non-human animals on their own terms. It will always be from you know the terms of of how we can relate to them as humans, and that's something that I suppose will always be you know if we're tackling it, it's something we'll always be kind of in recovery of. We're always going to be trying to change that, but we'll, I don't think we'll ever fully achieve it really. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me because it, it does touch on so many things that we've talked about before, Josh, especially um, because obviously when we talk about animals, we can only talk if we're going to talk about them as being like us, we can only use a human sort of selection of words to talk about them. So you use he or she, because as soon as you use it, it's an object. So the same mm -hmm. happens with AI as well, because we can only talk about them in those terms, either terms that we under, that refer to us or terms mm -hmm. that don't. So we don't have a separate sort of language code for animals or other sort of sentient beings mm. i mean some languages they 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 do have more options available to them in english and, and many languages we don't and somebody said to me once in, in a workshop she said well you know in in my language we have we have genders for for say pigs pigs are always feminine and we have uh, you know genders for cows they're always masculine um but it's it's not still not quite the same i mean it doesn't sound as as awful as when in english we, we call animals it for instance um but it still doesn't 
recognise the animal's individuality because you would still refer to, for example, a, a male pig as, as in the feminine grammatical gender, um, and it's not the same as we would do with a human. And if we, you know, if we met a human, or so let's say we could see a human in the distance, and we didn't know what their sex or gender was. Um, there's no way we would refer to them as it. We'd say they, wouldn't we? We'd, we'd, yeah. we'd recognise that we, they have an individual um, biological um, status and, and, and a social gender, which maybe animals is more tricky to to talk about. Um, but we would never refer, refer to them with the kind of pronouns that we would use for objects. So, of course, it makes sense, like you say, that we would start to apply these very human social notions of gender to animals and 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 technology yeah and your ships and, and we have strange things like that don't well, we? yeah. ships and cars and which which in itself is a, is a politics of its own self isn't it because obviously ships are all female as well yeah. um but then obviously any any of these words that we apply to these things have then got their own sort of discursive sort of power structures around them haven't they mm -hmm. as soon as you start to think of pigs as feminine and cows as male for example that in itself has a load of problems and it has a load of sort of um, sort of concepts that you're automatically applying to them just by by doing that and then it's so so problematic so difficult isn't it but this has been mm. really um, fascinating isn't it Josh this I, I could listen to you go on for eight hours ever if I'm honest this is <laughs> the, the as you, when you said before about viewing the world with a human lens I thought I, hadn't, I don't think I'd ever thought about that before that's that's kind of a bit mind-blowing actually <laughs> in the, in the same way that you uh, you know you kind of when you first like hear something of like liberation politics, you're like, "Holy shit!" Like you can view, you can view the world like that. It was like, yeah, like that. So well, there we go. Uh, mind, mind blowing podcast for you. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Josh, we haven't heard much from you, have we? No, it's it's your right. videos I, on, That's why. Yeah. <laughs> when um, you were talking about uh, you're doing a workshop and someone came up to you and, and sort of said, you know, in my language, you have um, mm. masculine and feminine terms for animal. Um, what it made me think of was, are you aware of sort of any, you know, sort of in some indigenous languages, they, sort of they refer to Mother Earth as a, as a person. Um, mm. Are there any, are you aware of sort of any languages where maybe they sort of refer to animals in, in sort of a, in a familial sense, like they talk about, um, you know, apes as, as brothers or something like that, or, or is that not? No, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I would imagine that there are. Um, some like that. I mean, it depends. I, I'm, I'm sure there are languages where the nouns that we would use to refer to animals are um, a fairer representation of um, the, the lived reality of animals. Um, I mean, in Japanese, we have different verbs for animate and inanimate entities. So, you know, even though we might talk about, you know, animals as, as well, in all sorts of ways, but at least that they would have a verb that means animals exist in the same way that humans exist as, as inanimate. And actually, animacy was something that that came up again and again. But unfortunately, I didn't have as much scope to look at. But different languages have different ways of handling animacy. Um, and some of the verbs I found were, in my in my study were were handled animacy in quite a strange way. Like you know, for instance, the verb destroy. Um, when we talk about destroying inanimate objects, it's quite clear what we're talking about. Um, but then I had a noun phrase, for instance, that was attached to do destroy in one instance, and it actually uh, it travelled along a line of animacy. So it started with animate. It's uh, you know I say I think this, the sentence was we're destroying the animals, the plants, the water, the land. And this was the noun phrase, animals, plants, water, land. So it went from, you know, all the way from the animate 
animals, plants whose animacy is debated, but I'd say they are animate. And then water, less animate, but arguably not inanimate, and land, which is totally inanimate. And uh, and, and this kind of sense of destroy, it, for me, was an example of how we, we, we construe animate entities as being inanimate um, and rendering them unkillable. Because um, when we render someone unkillable, it's easier for us to talk about killing them. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I'm sure there are languages where there's all sorts of different ways. I mean, uh, I, and, and there are thousands of languages, aren't there? So there, there'll be thousands of potential worldviews on, on human-animal relations. But in English, it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because we've got such um, kind of rigid use of pronouns. I mean, maybe we'll, we'll develop new new terms to talk about this as we... Uh, negotiate new relationships, um, but it's it's very difficult, isn't it? And because language is so embedded in us and, and how we see the world and how we relate to others that to change language is to change the way people think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think it is. I think that's a really good uh, point to end there, Josh. Um, I mean, that was really fascinating. I don't, I don't know what you think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely brilliant podcast. <laughs> Sorry, it's just the gaps are making me laugh every time I sort of lead on to you because of the slight <laughs> delay on the line. <laughs> yes, that's been really good. And um, thank you very much, Emma. Uh, really no, appreciate that. You. That was really, really interesting. Uh, thanks thank very you. much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. For more podcasts and interesting chat, visit inthezonepodcast.com. <laughs>